Hello and welcome to another election special episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My guest today is Phil Burton Cartledge. We spoke about Tory party strategy in the election campaign. If you find these episodes interesting and useful, please think about becoming a supporter of the show. You can become a supporter for $3 a month, which will also get you access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Phil Burton Cartledge is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby. He's currently researching the political crisis of the Conservative Party and he blogs regularly at the blog All That Is Solid. The web address is a very public sociologist.blogspot.com and you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at PhilBC3. I began the interview by asking Phil what we know about the electoral strategy of the Conservatives and the voter coalition that they hope to put together to achieve victory in the general election on December 12. Well, I suppose we've been quite lucky in Boris Johnson has been very loud in telegraphing his intentions about how he intends to run a general election since before, well, just before the Tory party uh, election contest. Hmm. It's very, it was quite clear from the off that his leadership campaign was all about Brexit. And as soon as he got into office, he then set about trying to appear to be this dynamic figure who was desperate to get Brexit done and was desperate to kind of bulldoze through all the obstacles, whether they were domestic, either in his own party or in the opposition, or in relation to any kind of obstacles thrown up by the European Union itself. And part of this is because the Tories' fundamental insight is that in order to win a general election, they have to repeat Theresa May's feat in 2017. Now, Theresa May's campaign has been widely panned by the commentariat as being a really bad Tory campaign. Mm. And that's why Jeremy Corbyn won. But of course, this is total nonsense if you start looking at the vote. No, she had votes of around 42.5%, which is comparable to Margaret Thatcher at her height. So obviously, uh, Theresa May did something right. And that thing that she did right was to basically pose herself as the champion of Brexit. If you want to see Brexit done, I'm your party, I'm your prime minister, vote for us. And that way she was able to very successfully squeeze the UKIP vote. Now, Johnson seems to think, and to be fair, it's not just Johnson. Well, I think we would have seen a very similar strategy from Jeremy Hunt or any of the other Tory leadership contenders had they won, except perhaps Rory Stewart. They, they all kind of are fundamentally aware that to win, they need to effectively repeat the feat that Theresa May managed, but try and keep the opposition divided. And, and this is entirely what Boris Johnson is about. Go hard on Brexit. And of course, if he goes hard on Brexit, that forces the other parties to frame their election campaigns in terms of Brexit. But for the Liberal Democrats, having a campaign entirely arranged around Brexit suits them. For the Scottish Nationalists, having a part a campaign entirely framed around Brexit also suits them as well. To a lesser extent, Plaid Cymru too. But the one party doesn't suit to have everything being determined and dominated by Brexit is, of course, the Labour Party. And so that is why Johnson's going hard on it. He thinks that he can keep his opposition divided by just banging on about Brexit. 
Going back to the 2017 election, and I mean, as you say, in terms of, of rural vote share, the Conservatives did very well. And I suppose there's some, there is something a little bit ominous, isn't there, about the fact that despite revealing herself to be uh, a pretty dreadful campaigner and an extremely sort of robotic wooden speaker, Theresa May was able to achieve that result uh, in 2017. And does that make you worry in terms of the fact that, you know, w- whatever Boris Johnson is, and clearly he's a politician with, with flaws, he's not particularly popular, but he, but he does have, you know, a certain charisma uh, of, of a kind that, you know, is completely absent from somebody like Theresa May. Yes, he does. Um, I mean, if this was a straight up personality contest, then I would be a bit more worried. But thankfully, it's not. And um, I guess one of the difficulties that Boris Johnson has is one that Theresa May didn't have. And that is he's got to think about a viable opposition from the Brexit party. Now, as we saw um, on Friday, Nigel Farage has telegraphed his intention to stand in over 500 seats. He was on Andrew Marr this Sunday morning saying more or less uh, the same thing. This is going to get Boris Johnson quite worried because he knows that some of those 2017 voters that stayed with the Conservatives did stay with the Conservatives because they offered, they had a Brexit proposition, if you like. Now, the thing is with... And some of those, of course, were what you might loosely describe as ex-Labour voters. Now, these I kind of always very wary of the term of ex-Labour voters because having door knocked many times in Stoke-on-Trent and spoken to voters on the doorstep who said, oh, yeah, I always used to vote Labour. And it turns out they haven't voted Labour since 2005 or 2001. I mean, to what extent can you describe them as ex-Labour voters? But nevertheless, some of those kinds of people did not all return to Labour in 2017. Those that kind of used, if you like, UKIP, who'd been voting UKIP all throughout the, um, the five years, six years up until 2017, then ditched them for the Labour Party, uh, sorry, for the Conservatives. They didn't go back to Labour. Some did, but a lot of them didn't. And the, the issue here is, would, would Boris Johnson be able to keep hold of them especially when you've got Nigel Farage saying that this is not a proper Brexit. I mean, it's quite interesting to see that in one of the big uh, right-wing Sunday papers today, you have a a big headline on the front page, a pro-Boris Johnson editorial, effectively. And on the inside is a double-page Brexit party advert denouncing Boris Johnson's um, uh, deal. And this is going to be the problem, because as far as Nigel Farage is concerned, he said so on Andrew Marr this morning, that he seems to be indicating that he's going to go after, spend more time going after the northern seats. And this is one of the reasons why Farage isn't standing himself, so it can be a national, a nationwide campaigner. Mm. But the problem for the Tories is that to mobilise their vote, they require the right-wing press to do the business for them. And I'm sure editorially they will. But they're going to run those Brexit party adverts because of the uh, the financial model has put all these papers into a precarious position. And so the all the Brexity discussion or the Brexity um, arguments have been made in these right wing papers over the years. And then you've got Nigel Farage who's being given space in these papers to articulate it to its logical extent. And this is going to have an impact on the core Tory vote. 
you know, whether Boris Johnson can wish it away or not, well, he can wish it away for as much as he likes. He's going to have to deal with it. And I don't think his saying that we need to do this to get Brexit over the line, Brexit is going to, um, you know, we'll get Brexit sorted. I don't think it's going to wash with a large number of these kinds of people. So we're talking about, you know, one in 10, perhaps, maybe a bit more one in eight Tory voters who are, who are thinking this way. And if they all depart, or if they all decide to give the Brexit party a punt in, then Boris Johnson is in really big trouble. Regarding Farage's messaging and, and this talk of, um, you know, he's adopting the language of, of, of surrender, mm-hmm. that it's a, a surrender mm-hmm. deal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, taking the language that Johnson himself has been using yes. regarding... Remain um, a Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what is it about Johnson's deal, do you think, that, that might drive them into supporting the Brexit party? Because, I mean, it's not clear to me that there's a huge number of people who would be opposed to the deal in the sense that it doesn't, you know, necessarily, you know, as Donald Trump has said, it doesn't necessarily uh, make it particularly easy for the uh, Conservatives to negotiate a free trade deal with the Americans, or that there's a very broad support for a sort of Singapore-style capitalism. It seems to me rather that a more salient issue is the question of migration and Mm. whatever else Johnson's deal does, it does allow the Conservatives to to pursue uh, a more punitive uh, migration system. That's certainly true. Um, but because we know at the moment that only kind of like wonks and academics and some people who spend too much time on Twitter have kind of picked over the Pe- People like us, you mean, Phil? Of course, and, and our audience as well. <laughs> um, but we're the only ones that have kind of really looked at it in, in any depth. The majority of people, they just kind of say, oh, it's a deal mm. and, um, you know, let's just get on with it. But of course, over the course of this campaign, more of these details are going to come out about what it means. And of course, where uh, Nigel Farage is concerned, one of the things that he's going to be banging on about, because he was talking about it on Andrew Marr again this morning, was how this means effectively that Brexit doesn't get done. So whereas Boris Johnson's messaging is that, you know, we're going to leave. If you vote for me, we'll get Brexit wrapped up by Christmas. Famous last words. Um, as far as Nigel Farage is concerned, he's going to be banging on about how long the trade deal is going to take and how long we'll be paying money into uh, into the system, the kind of jurisdiction that the European Court will have over it. So it's not it's not a case that you know Nigel Farage is going to frame this in kind of technical wonkish terms because Nigel Farage is incredibly skilled at reducing these quite complex issues into issues that kind of effectively um, punch his um, his constituency in the guts and gets them to kind of react accordingly. And one of those things is that the fact that European Court of Justice will have jurisdiction and that is effectively control of the uh, by the EU over the UK. Oh, and we're going to have to pay more money into the system as well. And we're going to be liable to the European Bank and all these kinds of things. All, all so, stuff that plays into very long-standing uh, tabloid stories, right? That's that's right. And because the kind of the like the right have taken the um, their foot off the immigration accelerator, if you like, they don't kind of bang on about it as much anymore. And interestingly, neither do the Express or the Daily Mail, which of course are core papers of the Boris Johnson constituency. That means that I don't think immigration is going to really figure a great deal during the course of this campaign. And 
instead everything around brexit will be framed in terms of control who has control and who benefits from this and i think this plays very much into nigel farage's hands i think that the argument he'll make around the so-called remainer brexit that we're far too close to the european union that we're not going to be this independent trading nation boris johnson promises that we're going to be um these are things that will play to the constituency that nigel farage is hoping to be able to build uh, during the course of this campaign and there's been quite a bit of, of debate online about how badly a significant Brexit vote, uh, Brexit party vote, I mean, how badly that would hurt the Conservatives, because um, one thing that's being pointed to is the 2015 election, mm. uh, where UKIP scored close to, to 4 million votes and uh, David Cameron win a majority. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and yeah, I've seen I've seen this debate as well. I mean, there there are two very significant differences between 2019 and 2015. Uh, The first is that David Cameron was able to win the 2015 general election, primarily because he squeezed the Liberal Democrats and he was able to rout them in in the South West. This time, it seems incredibly unlikely that Boris Johnson is going to uh, perform the same feat. I mean, whether you like the Liberal Democrats or not. They've managed to rebuild their party as a fairly formidable campaigning machine. They've got over 100,000 members now. I think they're around about 120,000 mark, just a little bit smaller than the SNP. Um, Most of their membership as well are relatively young, unlike the Tory party membership. And they will be going out and they will be campaigning quite hard in in their target seats. And a lot, as we know, most of their target seats are Tory Lib Dem marginals, not Lib Dem Labour marginals. Interestingly, you know, um, Jo Swinson is telegraphing her opposition to Corbyn and seems to really relish the idea of attacking the Labour Party and seems to dial in her attacks on the Tories. Uh, if she's got any sense, that that kind of pitch will change during the course of this campaign because they stand to win more seats from the Tories than they do uh, from Labour. But we will see. So that's one factor. And the the second factor as well is that, again, whatever anyone thought of 2015 Ed Miliband, 2019 Ed Miliband, of course, is a different proposition. (laughs) But tweeting about class war and challenging his dad, um, channeling his dad rather. Um, But in 2015, he was challenging his dad by running a very centrist campaign, a very boring and technocratic campaign. Mm. It just this, turned... this is the controls on immigration mug era, right? That is right, yes. Controls on immigration mug and and all the rest of it. The the Edstone and all the other kind of wonkish stunts. Um, and that just didn't inspire a lot of people. And of course, the Labour Party was much smaller and its activist base was, was much smaller. Now, of course, the Labour Party is quite different. Labour Party again is fighting this election from a position of relative weakness and as we have seen three times now uh, during the 2015 leadership contest during the 2016 leadership election and then from the 2017 general election we have three examples now of uh, jeremy corbyn successfully leading an insurgency and here we are on the fourth occasion you'd be incredibly dumb to bet against him being able to do the same thing again So because, if you like, 2019 and 2017 are elections that rely on mass politics, aided and bettered by social media, of course, but also the fact that you've got 
tens of thousands of people pounding the streets, delivering the leaflets, and hundreds of thousands of people in the case of the Labour Party making the case against the Tories and making the case for Jeremy Corbyn's programme in the workplaces, in the um, in the community centres, when they go shopping, in the pub, in the you know wherever wherever people go. You know, that is a massive asset that Labour Party has now that they did not have in 2015. And it is an asset that can cut across any kind of populist appeal that Boris Johnson makes, any kind of populist appeal that the Brexit Party might make in Labour Party constituencies. And that's why I think that looking to 2015 and expecting, I certainly think the Brexit Party will do better than UKIP did in 2017. But I don't think we'll see the same kind of unevenness that we saw in 2015 where, the U, where, where UKIP did proportionally better in Labour-held seats than they did in Tory seats. One thing we've seen, particularly in the, in the last few days, is, is more indication of the changing composition of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. Announcements from people on the, on the more liberal wing of the party, such as Amber Rudd and Nicky Morgan, announcing that they're not, they're not going to be standing. How badly do you think this, uh, this hurts the Conservatives in terms of being able to continue to appeal to uh, Conservative voters who were, who were quite happy with the, sort of the Cameron-Osborne wing of the party uh, ruling, the, uh, ruling the roost? I think this is a very big problem for Boris Johnson, and it's also an opportunity for, for Joe Swinson. So for Boris Johnson, I mean, again, if we go back to the 2017 general election, and of course, people are going to draw a lot of parallels, um, because as I said, this is a, 2017 was a, an election done under the conditions of mass politics, just like this one is. And what we saw there was the Lib Dems, again, were, were incredibly squeezed. But I do think that most of that kind of Cameroon, soft Tory, swing vote um, portion of the Tory, uh, Tory voter coalition in the main did stick uh, with Theresa May. And I think they stuck with Theresa May for a couple of reasons, uh, chief of which was that for a part of this kind of soft Tory coalition is an idea of social conscience. So one nation Toryism is always a nice idea, but it never gets implemented in practice. Another example of the yawning chasm between Tory theory and Tory practice, if you like. Um, but Theresa May certainly did talk that talk a great deal from the day one that she entered into Downing Street. I mean, plenty of people commented on the time that effectively she heard half-inched Ed Miliband's um, economic programme from 2015. And when you actually look, I mean, not many people look at the manifestos, of course, but if you look at the manifesto that was written by uh, Nick Timothy, it was very much kind of in the blue collar Tory vein, this idea of, you know, the nation being one entity and that those that uh, have the broadest shoulders should um, be able to carry more of the responsibility for fixing things that there should be, we need to kind of re-energise or re connect a sense of social responsibility on the part of those on the top all of that stuff was in the in the tory manifesto and it was in as far as you could say there was a philosophy underpinning it it was certainly there and i think part of theresa may's initial appeal you remember that her uh, her poll ratings from when she became uh, prime minister up until um early on in the 2017 general election campaign her poll ratings her personal poll ratings were through the roof and part of it was because she offered this break 
with what went before. She wasn't a dog-eat-dog politician. She wasn't a homework crisis politician. She was someone that tried to appear as someone who genuinely cared. Now, obviously, if you want to run on a caring ticket, it's a good idea that you run a candidate who knows how to do human well, uh, which, of course, Theresa May did not. Um, But where those people, where those voters are concerned who find that kind of politics appealing, and of course are quite soft on the European Union, quite like the idea of being part of the single market, may have businesses or business interests or friends who have business interests who look to the EU and also like to travel around the EU without any kinds of um, issues. Well, Boris Johnson has basically told those people to get stuffed. He's not interested in them. So I know that when you when you look at his manifesto, and I know his manifesto is going to be quite a thin document, aside from Brexit and aside from immigration, uh, Boris Johnson will try and kind of go for quite a soft Tory tone. I think you'll see elements of Theresa May's manifesto in there around kind of one nation Toryism and so on. But because he's really gone hard on, on Brexit, and because he's been seen to relish the purging of so-called liberal Tories and the fact that some of them, like Nicky Morgan, who was quite prepared to stomach this and go along with it for the culture secretary brief, what, what on earth that she did with that brief over the last few months, no one knows. Um, see her go, to see Amber Rudd go, to see Justin Greening go, see Heidi Allen then you know, nip off to our friends Change UK and then disappear into the Liberal Democrats and not stand at all now. All of these things say bad things about Boris Johnson. And I think that those kinds of people who look to those sorts of politicians certainly will not be voting Boris Johnson this time and will find the Liberal Democrats a much more congenial proposition. Regarding this sort of reheating of, of the Nick Timothy strategy, you know, the, the Erdington conservatism, as it, as it was called, I mean, there was an interesting story I, I saw uh, a couple of days ago. Anthony Seldon's new book uh, is, is being serialised in The Times. It's called called May at 10, and it's all about Theresa May and, and the May campaign. And there, there are some interesting things in that. I mean, one, one of them is, is her response to the Brexit referendum, where apparently she was in, in tears, uh, expressing upset about... Um, how working class voters were going to be hurt the most by uh, by us leaving the European Union. And I wonder if this points to a problem that Boris Johnson has in terms of um, that he's going, go, he's really going to sort of struggle to seem like he genuinely cares mm. about the voters he's trying to appeal to in, in northern working class constituencies. Because, um, I mean, clearly Theresa May wasn't interested in doing things that would seriously help those communities. She's not. She was never interested in, in you know, no. a serious economic offer. But there is that kind of, and, and Will Davis has written about this in the London Review of Books, this kind of mm. um, protective conservative ethos that is, is particularly salient in the Home Office, um, mm. where there does seem to be a sort of, you know, it, it seems kind of genuine, their mm. concern for these people, but it's it's... It's only able to express that concern by understanding the working class as white, as reactionary, and that the way you look after these people is by hammering migrants and, and going after criminals rather than, you know, offering a sort of substantive economic offer along the lines that the Labour Party is offering. And, and you know, it's just it's very hard to imagine Boris Johnson in tears for, for mm. you know, well, any, anybody really, but with the possible exception of himself. Yeah, I'd completely agree with that. Um, yes, um, 
I think that a lot of northern tour, uh, sorry, kind of working class voters in places that have traditionally returned Labour MPs, you know, they they are fairly sophisticated voters in and of themselves. This is something that a lot of the London-based commentariats seem to miss out on. Whereas, um, including the ones they, who visit Walsall all the time. Yes, and also someone who, a certain commentator who liked to come to Stoke and did a mere culpa and then still kind of writes rubbish about northern working class people. But um, but anyway, the um, as far as as far as this issue is concerned, yeah, they can see that Boris Johnson isn't particularly interested in them, and he's it's for him. The problem with Boris Johnson is because he's acted in such a cynical manner all throughout his career. Um, people can see through it. I mean, they might go, ha, 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 Boris Johnson's quite funny. Mm. You know, and there's been times, you know, I might have very guiltily guffawed at something that he that he said. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't know what he is. Mm. And um, they know that he doesn't care about people like them. You know, they know that um, if he if he gets a chance to, uh, to kind of suck it to him, he, he will. So, I mean, you do think he'll he'll struggle to have that kind of authenticity that Theresa May seemed to have, at least at the beginning of her campaign. I mean, I was you know yeah. I was listening to uh, Stephen Bush on a on a uh, I forget which podcast it was, but he was he was talking about the way in which Theresa May initially came across as the sort of person you might know, um, and there is something quite sort of mm. like school board of governors about Theresa May. Yes. Uh, whereas Boris Johnson is obviously a, a more sort of rarefied elite figure than her. Yes. Yes, that that's entirely right. And the thing is, yes, um, people have certainly encountered people like Theresa May in their lives. And of course, this is part of the um, the appeal of someone like Nigel Farage as well. Nigel Farage is the kind of the 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 well the well to do guy who's you know a gaffer of a firm or something like that who would might might banter with his workers and and that kind of thing. People all know a Nigel Farage type. And also, people all know a Jeremy Corbyn type as well. You know the kind of the, the the he always gets likened to the geography teacher, but he does come <laughs> across as someone who you could knock on someone's door and they might say, "I absolutely hate that Corbyn," but they they will certainly agree with you that he genuinely cares about what he thinks. That he genuinely cares about the people who sleep rough, the people that have to access the the food banks, the people that can't get on the housing ladder and this is this is the part of the problem we've now got in in wider culture more generally um you're seeing this kind of shift in management culture and people will have experienced this in the workplace towards a kind of a a gloss of care of management taking responsibility for their workers and wanting to care about the well-being of their workers kind of the whole stress on work-life balance now of course this is something that only really applies to people who work in secure or part-time uh, sorry secure or full-time jobs but nevertheless it's there in wider culture and we see this ethic of care in public sector in public services and so on and i think in a way that jeremy corbyn is sort of riding this cultural wave of this ethic of care and boris johnson's very much part of the old school of you know this is this is how it is. Take it or leave it. You know, I'm only in it for myself. If you don't want, if you don't like this, tough. Um, you're just going to have to deal with it. And I think that is going to be uh, pretty much a bit of a negative as far as he's concerned. Obviously, particularly with 
people who benefit from from this culture of care um also the kind of also the kind of layers of management who are fully signed up to this culture of care ethos who may have voted tory in the past again these might cross over with the sort of the soft tory the cameroons and so on but again this kind of these this cadre of management is growing all the time and that also poses johnson a bit of a difficulty I mean, one of the things that is pointed to is as an advantage Johnson holds over his opponents, including in the Conservative Party, and we saw this during the leadership campaign, is this this notion that he's, you know, he's a sort of transgressive politician in the mould of, uh, you know, obviously there are differences, but it's somewhat in the mould of somebody like Donald Trump or, mm-hmm. or Salvini in Italy, um, and that there's a kind of frisson of excitement that, that people experience in in seeing a politician who you know will mm. say sort of outrageous things and you know we've certainly seen Boris Johnson saying plenty of you know outrageously mm-hmm. uh, you know racist things and and tilting at a sort of more authoritarian streak during the prorogation moment but do you feel that that sort of appeals to quite you know a fairly niche section of the electorate and doesn't doesn't have a you know won't appeal to won't really fit with this electoral strategy of of trying to to gobble up seats in the north uh, yes, because um, of course his problem is that by you could say that Jeremy Corbyn is transgressive because Jeremy Corbyn's Labour is all about talking about the kinds of policies, talking about the kinds of issues that have been effectively excluded from mainstream politics for some time, and these are issues that Boris Johnson has zero interest in. Um, so, if you like, Boris Johnson has to face that transgression from his left. On the right, of course, he has to face a transgression from Nigel Farage, who, of course, can talk about some of these issues. And actually, he's probably been less racist than Boris Johnson has in his pronouncements. But that's because I think Nigel Farage is a more skilled politician than Johnson is. Um, But you've got um, a proposition that's, again, very black and white, very take it or leave it from Nigel Farage, who will also be, you know, all throughout this campaign, criticising Boris Johnson. The only kind of thing that Boris Johnson can really pull off, I suppose, is if he eats a bit of humble pie and tries to come across as a, oh, no, they're picking on me, as a kind of a sort of an underdog. And it's very hard to appear as an underdog when you are someone like Boris Johnson, when you've been at the top of politics for 20 years, when you're you're from an incredibly privileged background, when you've been to Eton and, and all the rest of it. So I think he's got a real, real difficulty there. He can he can try and go and be transgressive on the right and be kind of explicitly racist if he wants. But of course, he can always be outbid by the Brexit party there. Or he can try and be transgressive and try and park some of his tanks on Labour's lawn. But if he if he does that, Labour can always outbid any kind of positive, uh, and I use that term advisedly, any positive elements of the Tory programme that he might put forward, such as, I don't know, more money for the NHS or you know, more coppers on the streets, all those kinds of things, more housing, you know, Labour have got a better offer on all of those things. So he is really between a rock and a hard place, Johnson. I don't think he's going to enjoy this election campaign at all. And, um, well, we will see what the results of this will be on December the 12th. Even if he does emerge victorious, I think he'll emerge quite a battered figure um, at the end of this. Aside from the sort of the, the broad electoral strategy, at the level of tactics, I mean, I wonder if, um, 
but there's also the question of fighting on multiple fronts and trying to reach different mm. publics through different mechanisms and you know we've seen this very much around facebook advertising in, yes. in the past that you can you can ruthlessly target particular audiences with with very particular messaging which won't be seen by the broader public and, and i wonder if, if we might see something of a dual strategy in that sense in the at the national level uh, you know, I suspect Johnson will shy away from the, the more kind of sort of dog whistle racism or, or even just open racism that we sometimes see from him. But that under the surface, a lot of that might be going on. And also that a lot of the heavy lifting might be done by the conservative press when it comes to mm. smearing the Labour Party. I mean, just today mm. uh, we have this uh, blazing across the front page of the Sunday Telegraph is a quote saying Jews will leave the UK if Labour wins. And, and you know, frankly, I'm just waiting at the moment for, for the first time um, you know, a, a conservative politician openly says on TV that all Labour's talk about billionaires and, and t- taking on business is dog whistle racism. Uh, yes, um, I think I think you're right. I think the the Tory press are going to do the the heavy lifting on this, um, but of course, none of this is happening in a vacuum as well. Um, they can go for their targeted stuff, um, but also Labour and the Liberal Democrats are putting out their own targeted stuff as well. Targeted particular localities and of course the problem with any targeted message is it only cuts through if it some way chimes uh, with your experience so for example sky at the moment sky news are have this project where they're looking at these targeted adverts that are being put out on social media and the first one they've looked at today is um one targeted around milton Keynes, where they dredged up a speech from the Tories read up a speech from Jeremy Corbyn in 2010 or 2011, in which he condemned the people of Milton Keynes for voting out one of his uh, one of his uh, colleagues. Um, are people going to really be bothered about that? Um, I, I can't. I can't really see it myself. Um, but of course, you know, one shouldn't be too complacent when it comes to these sorts of things. But I imagine that because the Labour Party is so so large, because we are putting out our own targeted um, material as well i think that there will be people who will be also within the labor party looking at stuff that is going out from the other parties targeted at particular constituencies and will be you know responding to them of course one of the advantages that labor has as well that the tories do not is the tories can target as much facebook advertising as they like in say Stoke-on-Trent South, one of the one of the local seats local to me, which is a swing seat which is just held by the Tories at the moment. But that stuff can be counted on the doorstep by the army of volunteers that are going out there. Whereas the the, the small uh, North Staffordshire Conservative Association, they've only got say around two dozen activists that they're going to have to split between four or five seats. It's going to be quite tricky for them to back up, if you like, social media. Um, the air war with the muscle on the ground, as I like to say. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.